Welcome back, listeners, to another podcast here with Doctors Who Create. I'm your host, Shiv, and today I'm sitting down with Max Gemeni. Thanks for being here, Max. Um, thanks for having me, Shiv. Mm-hmm, of course. So would you like to start with just maybe introducing yourself and saying a little bit about what you're most passionate about in the field? Uh, yeah, sure. So I'm a fourth-year medical student here at Yale. Being a fourth year, people typically expect that you're like on your way to residency. I'm doing it. I'm actually doing a research year, which is kind of more common amongst my classmates. And I grew up in Cameroon in Yaoundé. So I moved to the U.S. about 10, 11 years ago to go to college, went to grad school after that. I studied bioengineering in graduate school, having done civil and environmental engineering in college. And then while I was in graduate school, uh, kind of just dawned on me that I should really pursue medicine. Um, I always had an interest in research, but, you know, as a grad student, I realized that the sort of like clinical piece was something that I needed for my career. And that's how I applied to med school. And from there on, I've been in medical school for the last four years. What really interests me, so I like research a lot because I feel like it's a way to, I guess, address some larger issues or solve some larger problems that you can't always just like solve in one-on-one clinical encounters, you know, where I like this sort of like pairing of science and application of science. I have mostly done research while in med school related to vulnerable and stigmatized populations. So I started my first project in med school was about addiction and endocarditis and cardiac surgery. I used to be interested in cardiac surgery because as I was starting medical school, New Haven was actually the the epicenter of the opioid epidemic in the state of Connecticut. So there was an opportunity to sort of look at what, you know, what are outcomes related to endocarditis for people who use drugs. And I've kind of sort of followed this addiction medicine trail since then, basically. Got it. Cool. And then I guess I know that you're very interested and passionate about also addressing marginalized communities and health disparities and racial justice in medicine. So, uh, and I know you have a podcast called Flip the Script for you. So could you maybe talk a little bit about your experience running that and how that's been? Yeah, totally. So yes, I, I do have the podcast Flip the Script and I also write a column called White Coat and a Hoodie. Uh, so I sort of dabbled in writing like the year right before I started med school. I, I wasn't always the one who just like wrote for fun, but I have found sort of using writing as a way to express, you know, personal experience that relate to larger societal issues like racism um, has been really cathartic. And then from a podcasting perspective, you know, I felt like there's so much knowledge being produced and, you know, strong work being done by scholars and community activists and like, you know, community-based organizations that are focusing on health disparities that aren't necessarily, you know, built into medical school curricula. And the reason why I started a podcast, that really came out of a kind of a frustration with, I guess, the scant nature of education related to health equity in med school, both in my curriculum, but also just like generally and just generally being tired of having the same conversations over and over with like colleagues about health disparities. And I said, you know what, if I'm going to keep doing this kind of work, I need to make it a more productive endeavor. And, yeah. and writing takes a lot more time than just interviewing an expert, right? Like I can't write about every 
issue related to racism in medicine. True. What I can do is talk to people who address, you know, said issues through their own line of work. And that's basically what I've been doing for the last, I guess, two years or so. So, you know, there are some faculty at Yale who do worth, uh, work related to health disparities. Uh, you know, people who work on addiction, incarceration. I've interviewed, you know, historians, anthropologists. So not only physicians mm, and like okay. public health researchers, but also people from other disciplines whose work really, uh, you know, is meant to inform how we are meant to address issues related to disparities in care and including like for example one of my uh, one of my guests her name is Mania Saunders she is a community health worker in in this program at Yale for people who are recently released from prison and I mean it's not only it's like a national network of transitions clinics basically but Mm. to be a community health worker in that program you need to have yourself a history of incarceration and I thought you know her own perspective is really valuable yeah, no, I think that's great because it's, as you were saying, if like when you see something that's not reflected in the curriculum that you're, you know, steeped in, you're taking a very practical approach to addressing that. Um, and I think talking to experts in the fields that are already doing that work is the best way to move forward with it. So I guess my next question is, have you, I know you said the the addressing of these issues was pretty scant in your curriculum, but mm-hmm. did you notice any explicit attempts to address um, yeah. things like I structural so. racism? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I definitely, right. I think every med school kind of, maybe not every, but many medical schools do try. Um, yeah. I think we fall short and obviously need to keep trying harder and relying more on expertise as opposed to amateurism, if that makes any sense. So, you know, in every med school curriculum, there's some level of public health education and like epidemiology that takes place. So, you know, right. I had, you know, we had a course in my first and second year called professionalism, ethics, and responsibility. We had a public health and epidemiology course as well. And then in like every other lecture about some given pathology, the cardiologist or the ophthalmologist who is lecturing would have like a few slides about like, I don't know, risk factors for a given condition. I remember this glaucoma lecture where the the risk factors listed were like being black, being Hispanic, having diabetes, just matters of disparities are talked about but mm-hmm. like not not with a critical race lens all always you know mm. what I mean? yes. um, so sort of like exploring the why basically i felt like there was an onslaught of information related to health disparities without necessarily giving us an opportunity or even asking us to interrogate the why right why do these disparities exist why does every big morbidity or comorbidity that you can think of, why do so many of these things happen so much more in Black people? You know yeah, what I mean? And like true. being a Black medical student, it's like often having to face my own and my family's mortality or morbidity in class all the time mm-hmm. and without the social context that obviously needs to be talked about quite a bit more. That's so true, yeah. I feel like previously a lot of curricula were, you know, it's easy to mention populations that are disproportionately affected. And usually those are black and brown bodies by the health system. But I think now more than ever, we're moving towards looking at the social determinants of health that are, that are often the underliers of, of causing those problems, you know? Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, I think that's essential. And I'm, I'm glad that your, a lot of your work spotlights that. And so why do you think, I guess this, 
interest in social justice is new to medicine? Well, I don't think it's new, right? Um, yeah. It's totally not new. It seems like it's taking off, but it has always been a thing, right? Like in the 1960s, medical students were protesting against the AMA because the AMA was like opposed to Medicaid, right? Like right, right. medical students volunteered their time in clinics that were started by the Black Panthers during the civil rights movement. Right, right, uh, right. Like a lot of the like standards of professionalism that we now have in our hospitals and like in the medical field in general, like are actually rooted in attempts from like the 60s to sort of like carve out or like kind of exile, for lack of a better word, those medical students who were rebellious and refused to ascribe to sort of like Eurocentric standards of what is meant to be professional. Um, no, so that's very true. I, I meant more so the higher ups or the, in terms of the medical hierarchy, the higher ups mm-hmm. seem to be more receptive in the past, you know, 10 years. And I think yeah. that's- Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, okay, so yeah. I guess more scholarship is being produced on this matter. Uh, the ratio for like genetics to social dis- determinants of health when it comes to racial disparities in terms of NIH funding is like 500 to one or something like that. Oh, wow. uh, but there's a lot more data that's coming out, you know, of many studies that are, you know, showing us like structural racism is literally killing us. And from a healthcare leadership perspective, it's also like the right thing to do for any given hospital's bottom line. And right you know, there's there's a financial aspect of it and just like facing truth for what it is and wanting to, I think, wanting to train physicians that are going to be apt and sort of like capable of addressing what's going to face them when they walk into the hospital on day one. I think that's probably what contributes to leadership listening more. But obviously, like, that's not a universal thing, right? Like, there was that story in the in the Wall Street Journal a few months ago, where the former dean of curriculum at one of the fanciest medical schools in this country was basically disparaging the need for education related to social determinants of health. So we definitely have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. I agree. This actually makes me think about our current time, and how Well, we can talk about how, you know, I just mentioned how things are improving from the other side. Um, But at the same time, something like a a global pandemic makes you realize how stark the differences are in terms of inequality, um, in terms Mm -hmm. of the haves and the have-nots when it comes to something like healthcare. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that. So I was just looking at this article. There's a survey that just published some data recently, right? Something like white and Asian Americans are like twice as likely to have the ability to work from home compared to like black and Hispanic people. Right. Because Mm. obviously like what are the kinds of jobs that are you're able to do from the comfort of your home? Right. Who are your sort of like working class uh, blue collar workers whose jobs you just like can't do from home. Um, And so, which means who is more likely to be exposed just from increased social contact you know, comparatively. So Right, right. And then the whole, I guess, politics of who can be tested and right. when we have a shortage I mean, of testing. Thing. Yeah. I mean, the CDC hasn't released that data just yet in terms of like who is getting tested overall versus like who is testing positive. But like at the local level, I just read that uh, in Milwaukee, for example, most of the people who are testing positive for COVID right now Uh, are middle-aged black men right Uh, oh i didn't see that um i mean this this epidemic it will not surprise me and it won't surprise 
you know, people who are actually experts in like, you know, epidemic response that black and Hispanic and native people end up sort of like bearing the brunt. Yeah, uh, no, totally. Of, of both mortality and, 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 and just like infection. Mm-hmm. If you just think back to New Orleans, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, yeah. it's, you know, the, the infectious disease epidemic that happened right after was very much similar. It's the black people from that region that bore the brunt of the epidemic. No, that's true. Yeah. And it's exactly those are the people who don't have the luxury of working from home or taking the public health precautions that we so often push on the public, you know? Right. Um, So it's a very double-edged sword. (laughs) I guess moving back towards, so obviously systemic change is needed to address healthcare disparities and health inequality in medicine broadly, but how do you think we should go about addressing these disparities, both on the physicians and the physicians in training side um, on a day-to-day? So I, personally, you know, I think there's very little that an individual physician, okay, let me backpedal here. We talk about social determinants of health. There's this layer of social need and then like sort of like risk, right? So Social needs and social determinants of health are different, if that makes any sense. And so I think, you know, within the healthcare system, we can contribute to addressing people's social needs if we have the funding for it, which a lot of healthcare systems do, right? So around the country now, plenty of healthcare systems are like investing in housing and sort of like collaborating uh, with homeless shelters or sort of like transitional housing type establishments or like Boston Medical Center has like a rooftop where it's it's a garden for their patients who are homeless to be able to have additional access to food. So that's addressing social need. Social determinants of health, you know, addressing that needs to come f- from a larger, as you say, like sort of like larger policy level, structural level uh, yeah. perspective. And it, it is really the change that happens there that I think would have the most impactful sort of like effect when it comes to addressing these disparities. Now, obviously there are also inequalities that are reified during clinical encounters. So, you know, like the way people are treated and talked to and perhaps like assumed to have malintent or to be, I don't know, faking illness or faking pain or whatever. Those sort of like interpersonal issues that have been studies, right, studied that take place in the day-to-day of clinical encounters do have an impact on, like, say, whether you're able to retain patients in a given treatment program or whether you're, you're able to get people to come back for a follow-up visit because maybe they felt like you as a provider were not kind to them or, like, didn't pay attention or were dismissive. So, you know, obviously, like, addressing that interpersonal racism is important, but I think those things are connected, Right. The reason why, you know, a large swath of doctors like act a certain way towards individual patients who are black or Hispanic or native or even like low income, right, come from a larger issue related to like classism and racism in this country, like housing segregation. Like, you know, your average medical student comes from a sort of like upper middle class home, right? Yeah. Probably went to a college where social networks were segregated, although even college is probably arguably the most diverse setting that people will go through in their life in this Mm -hmm. country because high schools and middle school, you know, sort of like the K through 12 system is 
very segregated based on housing. Uh, right, public school so at least. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. There, there's, and private schools are disproportionately white. Right, um, right. So there's this like two-way street between the larger structural issues that we talk about that obviously have a downstream impact on health. No, totally. That it's also a- affects how people behave towards others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that has like spillover effects onto patient outcomes. Now, there are smaller things that healthcare institutions can do at the like just like patient level that are not necessarily related to social needs, but like just workability of the healthcare system that can address this, right? So a good example, I just read a study maybe last week about medical homes, you know, those kind of like quote unquote settings where a whole bunch of different services may be accessible through like one specific center. But as it turns out, that medical home, those settings like work for white patients, but don't work for like black or Hispanic patients in terms of, you know, like improved outcomes. So having all patients in mind, right, and and sort of like intentionally designing the systems that we use to deliver care is important, all in our sort of like quality improvement programs and whatnot, right? Another good example is like parking, like I have been in clinics so many times and the patient asked me, can you validate my parking? And I'm like, I'm so sorry, I can't, right? That's a small thing. It costs to park. And then you get to the doctor and it, it takes longer than you might've expected to, to be seen. And you're mm. like, scared you're going to get a ticket. Like those are random little barriers that can be addressed by healthcare systems. I used to work for Vanderbilt and the medical center there does have free parking, but that's not like a universal thing especially in cities where public transportation isn't particularly super accessible, like exactly. New York City. No, yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's, uh, I guess the basis of it is that the structural change is required to have any change at the micro level. And we can all do our part, but it takes a larger movement to really, yeah, yeah. yeah and I think, these systems, yeah. Yeah, I also think, obviously, like, you know, multidisciplinary care is important at that one-on-one level, right? And part of it comes with education of the clinicians. Like you see patients being aware of whatever barriers they might face to be able to get to your clinic and being humble enough to like know to ask and knowing or attempting to ask in the right way. Like asking people what are their needs can contribute to that social need thing, right? Where true, like true. we have community health workers and subsystems, social workers, like to sort of like help people meet some some needs. But yeah. by the time a patient comes to your clinic and they tell you that they're, I don't know, they're like having trouble accessing quality foods, whatever, like fixing that need is probably not going to by itself undo the damage that is done by larger, you know, like I don't know, environmental racism and pollution and all the other things that are uh, that have downstream impact on healthcare outcomes. Right, right. It doesn't mean no. it be done, right? Like, it doesn't mean it shouldn't be done, but it's just something to think about when we talk about social determinants of health in clinical contexts. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Well, yeah, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Max. And I appreciate you sharing your thoughts, your, your advocacy, and your knowledge with me and with our listeners. And I wish you the best of luck with everything that you're up to and finishing med med school, I guess. You're in your last year? No, so I'm in my research year and I'm going to go back to like regular med school next year. Got it. So it it will have been five years by the time. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me to chat with you. 
Hosting and editing for this podcast was done by me, Shivnad Karni. Music was brought to you by the band Night Float and YouTube's audio library. If you have any thoughts or comments on this podcast, please tweet us at Doctors Create. And please share it with your people if you like the work that we're doing. I'll talk to you soon.